Our next speaker is Professor Tony Goodman. He is a professor of mathematics at the University of Melbourne, a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science. Uh, he has an award named after him. And he's also an Australian representative in the World Triathlon Championship. Pretty impressive. Uh, can you please join me in welcoming Tony to the stage? Needless to say, that's uh, age group triathlon. <laughs> I was a bit um, surprised to be invited to speak because I've never spoken on scientists as distinct from talking about science. I wondered why that was such a good idea, and when I came along here last month, I decided it was a really good idea, but why talk about scientists rather than science? And uh, two reasons occurred to me. One is it's, it's easier, uh, <laughs> if, especially in my area. For example, in, if, you're, if you're in medicine, it's easy to say that, well, relatively, it's easy that uh, Ian Fraser developed the vaccine against the papillomavirus. Everybody can understand you know, what a wonderful thing that is. But uh, if I tell you about the four-colour theorem, that, uh, which is a proof that every planar map can be coloured with no more than four colours, that doesn't evince the same Area, uh, aura of excitement in the, in the, in the public. <laughs> uh, that's one aspect. And, and the other thing that occurred to me is maybe scientists as scientists are interesting because they are in some sense different. And especially as a mathematician, I can't tell you how many times on social occasions I've met someone, they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a mathematician. They say, oh, well, that's the end of our conversation. Uh, and Thinking about mathematicians, I think they are different. Um, and indeed, many scientists are different. And, but in particular, mathematicians are different because they have such a, a focused um, logic, which is, seems sort of natural, but is, is by the general public is considered extreme. And I'd like to give you three examples of uh, increasing bizarreness uh, involving three different uh, mathematicians. Um, the, the, the first one uh, is uh, when I was a child, um, in 1951, I was five or six years old, and the Age newspaper had a page called The Junior Age, where they had little puzzles and comics for kids and competitions, and these competitions involved cash prizes. And I, remember, I still remember one of the questions was, write an essay on the most important thing that ever happened to you. So that was immediately obvious. I grabbed a piece of paper and wrote down the most important thing that ever happened to me was being born, because otherwise nothing else could have happened. And that, that, that struck me as totally logical, and my parents thought it was a bit weird, but I sent it in, and, uh, and I, I won second prize and five shillings. That was the first thing I ever... Um, that wasn't really an essay. The, the, the second one occurred last year. We had a visitor to the department from Stanford University, and uh, I was asked to uh, look after him because the person who invited him had to go overseas. I didn't know this guy, but he gave a wonderful seminar, and we went out to lunch, and I said, uh, you know, you're here for a week. Would you like to go to dinner one evening? And he said, no, thanks. Uh, and, and I thought... Uh, <laughs> I must have looked a bit surprised because he explained to me, he said, uh, oh, he said, look, I'm only here for a week and I hate jet lag, so I'm staying on Californian time, which means I'm getting up at 1am and I'm going to bed at 5.30pm. <laughs> Perfectly natural. Um, and 
I could thought, well, only a mathematician would do something like that. <laughs> anyway, th uh, and in case you think this was a really strange and weird guy, this year he won the, um, the Shaw Prize, which is uh, named by, uh, or was uh, given by Run Run Shaw, a Hong Kong millionaire, um, and you get a nice medal and a million US dollars. Uh, and he's, he's the first statistician to ever have won that prize. So, uh, you know, being crazy like that certainly uh, comes with, with, with other benefits. Uh, and the third example is the subject of tonight's talk, um, Norbert Wiener. Who has heard of Norbert Wiener? Just as I, there is a Melbourne connection as well, and he's one of the greatest minds of the 20th century in, for three different ways, as I hope to convince you. So Norbert Wiener was born in 1894 and was the absolute epitome of the absent-minded professor. You, could not, you couldn't make up the stories that he, he actually did. One of the less extreme examples was he went to a conference at Yale, drove his car there, parked his car in the car park, went to the conference, came back, forgot where he parked his car, which you can understand, but forgot what the car was, <laughs> forgot, and forgot what colour it was as well. So, so he did what any mathematician would do and sat down by the side of the car park, pulled out his notebook and just did mathematics until there was only one car left and he worked out that must be his. So that, that's one of the... And, and in fact, you, you laugh, but that saved his life because years later... Uh, when McCarthyism was sweeping the US, he was about to go on the security register, which is the last step before you are simply not allowed to work and your career is totally destroyed. They, had, they didn't have any hard evidence against him because there wasn't any, but there are all sorts of weird things. He met with Hal Dane in England, who was a communist and various other things. But then so they discovered this story and they thought, this guy's wacko, um, so we won't ban him. So he, he was allowed to keep working. Uh, but I digress. Anyway, so let me tell you about uh, Norbert Wiener. His life in three parts, all of them extraordinary. The early part, he was a child prodigy. The middle part, he was an absolutely magnificent scientist. And finally, for the last part of his life, he was a popularizer of engineering and science and a critic of the benefits of progress, a moralist and a philosopher. The second part of his life, which is probably the greatest achievement, is, is less well known. Um, before I tell you about his childhood, um, it's incredibly influenced by his father, so I'll just give, spend a moment on his father. His father, Leo, was born in Russia. Uh, they moved to Poland and then to Germany. Uh, he was a descendant of uh, Moses Maimonides, who, if any of you would know, is, is the greatest Jewish philosopher of the, of the 12th century, whose influence is uh, very much present to this day. Uh, Leo was a fantastic linguist. While he was a teenager, he was already fluent in 10 languages. Um, at 19, he decided there was no future in Europe, so he decided to emigrate to the US. He got on a boat, and that stopped in England for two weeks in Liverpool. He went out and bought 12 books on English, taught himself English while the boat was in the harbour, and was fluent in English by the time it left. Uh, as it, it went to Cuba first, he befriended some Cubans and mastered Spanish. He arrived in um, New Orleans, uh, no money, no skills, no introduction, nothing, became a uh, labourer working, picking cotton, uh, discovered there was no money in this, so just left and wandered north and ended up in, in Missouri, where he found a deserted farmhouse, which was falling apart. He rebuilt it with his bare hands, planted enough crops to keep him 
in subsistence uh, and worked there for a year just staying alive that way. He decided there was no future in this. He was getting enough to eat, but he wasn't saving any money. So he wandered into town one day and wandered into the office of the um, inspector of education and uh, so dazzled him with his erudition that he was immediately hired as a teacher. He started teaching at one of the local high schools and within 12 months uh, was appointed as Professor of Modern Languages at the University of Kansas. Um, at that time, he met and married a woman uh, of a similar European Jewish background to himself. Uh, and when uh, shortly thereafter, there was a big economic downturn in, in Missouri. The university sacked a whole lot of people, including him. Uh, and Norbert had just been born. They moved to Boston. Uh, by that stage, or sorry, towards the end of his life, he was fluent in more than 40 languages. Um, shortly after he got to Boston, he was hired at the University of Harvard as the professor of Slavic languages. He was the first Jewish professor ever hired at, at Harvard University, and almost certainly the first uh, non-graduate to be hired as a professor at Harvard. Anyway, so uh, Leo uh, was this remarkable man. Um, he went off to Harvard, and Leo's mother started reading to little Leo uh, as mothers and indeed fathers tend to do to their small children. Um, before Leo was three, he got bored with this and snatched the book from his mother and started reading to her. Um, father, of course, started chatting to him in Latin and ancient Greek, as you do. And, uh, and, and by the time Leo was five, he was comfortably reading the uh, Latin and Greek um, classics in their original language. Um, so when he was five, they sent him off to school. Um, the school didn't quite know what to do with him because he, he, you know, he was so far ahead of things. But his father was horrified two years later when he was seven to discover that his mathematics was so bad he could only count on... He needed his fingers to count and he didn't even know his tables. So his father whisked him out of school and, and decided to, to home educate him. And uh, that's where it becomes uh, quite extraordinary. Um, he... Um, he already, as I say, knew uh, the Greek and Latin classics, so then he decided he should uh, teach his son his favourite German poets and philosophers. Um, so then at seven, Leo added Darwin and Huxley and other scientists to his son's curriculum. Norbert became fascinated with zoology and botany and through his father's books retraced Darwin's travels and that of other famous naturalists. Then he studied his father's books on psychiatry, the occult, the excavation of Troy, the science fiction of Wells and Jules Verne. By nine, he was learning algebra, geometry, trigonometry and physics as well. Um, at 11, they decided he was ready to enter university. Um, <laughs> So the local newspaper sent a reporter around to interview this remarkable child. The reporter could not understand why an 11-year-old would prefer Huxley and Darwin to Hansel and Gretel. Philosophy is more interesting than fairy tales, that's all, said young Norbert. In fact, philosophy is fairyland to me. The stunned reporter scribbled away as Norbert illustrated his point with a brief discourse on the popular 19th century philosopher Ernst Haeckel, who coined the term ecology and was famous for his insight that, that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. <laughs> Norbert, of course, had read Haeckel in the original German and much preferred him to the works of Homer, as he explained to the, uh, the reporter, and other classical poets he had read in the ancient Greek. Haeckel, he informed the reporter, tries to solve the riddle of the universe. Homer only spun stories. So that was little Norbert at 11. Um, 
unfortunately, Leo was not the most patient of teachers. Have any of you seen the film Shine? <laughs> well, the, the father in Shine was an absolute monster to David Helfgott, and apparently uh, this father of, of Helfgott was actually a model of patience compared to Leo. As Norbert described sessions with his father, he would begin the discussion in an easy conversational tone. This lasted exactly until I made the first mathematical mistake. Then the gentle and loving father was replaced by the avenger of the blood. Father was raging, I was weeping, and my mother did her best to defend me, although hers was a losing battle. Anyway, Norbert, as you could imagine, whizzed through his undergraduate degree in Tufts University. He graduated officially in mathematics, but did a whole lot of uh, other sciences as well, and decided zoology was particularly interesting, so enrolled for a PhD in zoology at, uh, at Harvard. Uh, and he found it rather boring because at the lectures he could immediately see the very end of the argument that the lecturer was starting, but uh, so experimentally he was totally useless. He couldn't focus a microscope when he picked up a scalpel to dissect a frog, he just about cut his finger off. And so given that zoology at that stage was very much an experimental science, he had to give up his PhD in zoology. So what do you do? Oh, I'll do a PhD in philosophy. Um, I don't like Harvard, I'll go to Cornell. So he went off to Cornell for a year and enrolled as a PhD student in philosophy. Um, decided that philosophy was okay, but Cornell's a bit isolated. So came back to Harvard and uh, re-enrolled as a PhD student there in philosophy and graduated at 17 with a PhD really in mathematical logic side of philosophy. And um, during his time there, he was, he, Leo, um, sorry, Norbert was very much trying to get away from the influence of his father. His father, of course, made things more difficult by writing articles about how you bring up a, such a bright child. Um, and uh, he wrote, was writing articles saying that his son was not particularly gifted and that any, <laughs> any advantage Norbert seemed to have over other children was due to his better training by Leo. As Norbert wrote in his autobiography many years later, when this was written down in ineffaceable printer's ink, it declared to the public that my failures were my own, but my successes were my father's. Um, a year after that, he went to Cambridge, and I'd like to thank Christian for mentioning several of the famous mathematicians of Ramanujan's time, because uh, Norbert came into contact with them. In that, he first went to study further philosophy with Bertrand Russell, uh, which he did, and he also studied mathematics with G.H. Hardy, who, as we've heard, was the foremost British mathematician at the time. Then he went to the World Centre of Mathematics, which was Göttingen in Germany, where he studied under Hilbert and Landau. Hilbert, you just heard from Christian, was the man who got 80 by, uh, from, on, on the scale of, uh, of Hardy, and Landau would have got a similar score. <coughs> he returned to America in 1916, he was uh, 22. He uh, wasn't quite sure what to do, so he took four jobs. He taught philosophy at Harvard. He worked uh, on engineering problems for General Electric. He wrote articles for the Encyclopedia Americana and was briefly a journalist for the Boston Herald. But he was soon fired for refusing to write puff pieces praising local politicians the newspaper proprietor was seeking to promote. He volunteered for World War I but was rejected for his poor eyesight. He was eventually accepted to work on ballistics for the army instead, and after the war he applied for a position at Harvard but was unsuccessful. He got a position at MIT, but his progress was slow, 
which frustrated him. So in 1928, he applied for the Chair of Mathematics at the University of Melbourne. <laughs> and there were 12 applicants at the time. The two standout applicants were he and Thomas Cherry, later Sir Thomas. Uh, Thomas, Sir Thomas, or Thomas Cherry and Vina were in a different league to the rest of them, but Vina was in a different league to Cherry. Um, but Cherry had a Cambridge PhD, and at that time in Australia, no professors of mathematics were ever appointed who didn't have a Cambridge PhD, and that persisted for a further 30 years, I might say. Uh, Wiener had references from the cream of European mathematicians, not only Hardy, but Max Born, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, Bohr, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, Cara Theodori, Frechet, Hilbert, Lebeg, Levy, De La Vallée-Poussin, Veblen and Weyl. That's like saying you're applying for a chair of composition and you had references from Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, Haydn. Uh, uh, no, no, no mathematician uh, living today could uh, call on a list of uh, references of such eminence. Uh, unfortunately, he also got one from a colleague, Professor Franklin of MIT, which while complimenting his mathematics said, and a colleague of mine got this from the archives of the University of Melbourne, so beware the references you write, they may come up 50 years later, <laughs> said, Vina is a member of the Hebrew race and has very peculiar traits, but personally he is of the finest grade. So, no, damned, yes. so that was the end of that. He eventually did get promoted to MIT. And while, look, it probably doesn't reflect well on Melbourne that he was dismissed so lightly, but he would have been a disaster. He was a useless lecturer and he was totally incapable of doing any administration. And in those days, professors were expected to do everything. If Melbourne had had any sense, they really should have appointed Cherry to run the show and, uh, and um, Vina to... Uh, make Melbourne the world centre of mathematics. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that was that. But uh, anyway, so slowly things improved for him at, uh, at uh, MIT. And in fact, he almost single-handedly is responsible for MIT being the great university it is now. He put MIT on the map because even though he was trained as a pure mathematician, he was also equally at home with applied mathematics and loved working with engineers and putting things on a, putting their vague problems on a firm mathematical foundation whereupon they could be ad advanced. He made, as well as that, he made numerous contributions to mathematics. Uh, he invented the concept of Wiener measures that gave mathematicians and engineers rigorous tools to discuss the collective behavior of wiggly curves or flexible surfaces which come up in all sorts of applications. Most uh, significantly, he helped design communication systems for use in both war and peace. He became interested in communication theory and developed the theory which he called cybernetics. That has, uh, the word cybernetics has Greek roots and comes from the Greek word for the steersman who sails a shallow, frail craft between the rocks in a safe way. This was really a theory of messiness, a theory that allowed people to deal with a world full of uh, poorly known agents and unpredictable events. And that was really the foundation stone of Shannon's communication theory, which has revolutionized science. Other contributions include things called the Wiener equation, the Wiener filter, Wiener's Torberian theorem, the Paley-Wiener theorem, the Wiener-Kinschein theorem, Wiener space, which is now known as Banach space, but was independently and at the same time discovered uh, by Wiener. Any of these discoveries would make a worldwide reputation for a mathematician. Wiener did them all. 
1945, though, when the war ended with nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Wiener was outraged. In his eyes, the government had committed a crime against humanity. He felt guilty that the technology of communications that he'd helped develop uh, might have been uh, involved in this. He, he felt that the nascent technology of computers and automatic machinery could lead to greater disasters if it remained in the hands of secret military and industrial organisations. From that moment on, he would have nothing to do with government or industry. He decided to devote a major part of his time educating the public to help them deal wisely with the new technologies. He wrote many books, newspapers, and magazine articles. In 1947, his article entitled A Scientist Rebels in the Atlantic Monthly made him instantly famous again. He outlined his refusal to cooperate with government saying, I do not expect to publish any further work which may do damage in the hands of irresponsible militarists. In the last decade, of his life, Wiener was really a prophet who spoke and wrote eloquently about the displacement of human beings by automatic machinery. He saw this displacement as a likely consequence of his own inventions, but he wrote and spoke with equal eloquence of the good that automatic machinery could do if it were used intelligently to make poor societies richer, to enable poor countries to transition from agricultural economies to industrial economies without enduring the horrors of the 19th century industrialization. He published two bestsellers, Cybernetics or Control and Communication of the Animal and the Machine and The Human Use of Human Beings. Before computers existed, these books predicted with startling accuracy the economic and political effects of computer technology. He was really a polyglot. He wrote fiction as well. He wrote science fiction. He wrote two autobiographies, a book about science and religion for which he won the National Book Award in 1965. For mathematics, he won the Bocher Prize, one of the highest awards in the field. And for his public writings, he received the National Medal of Science from President Johnson in 1964, shortly before his death later that year in Stockholm. I'll give Wiener the last word. This was in 1950. And can I remind you, in 1950, the world's population was two and a half billion, about a third of what it is now. There was a period of enthusiasm. The war had ended. People were rebuilding. Climate change meant what happened when spring changed to summer. And, um, people didn't have any idea of uh, environmental concepts. Wiener wrote the following. What many of us fail to realise is that the last 400 years are a highly special period in the history of the world. The pace at which changes during these years have taken place is unexampled in earlier history, as is the very nature of these changes. This is partly the results of increased communications, but also of an increased mastery over nature which on a limited planet like the Earth may prove in the long run to be an increased slavery to nature. For the more we get out of the world, the less we leave. And in the long run, we shall have to pay our debts at a time that may be very inconvenient for our own survival. Thank you.